If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we consider uh, this morning that epistle that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote. I would ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, as they did throughout the Scripture to show respect for uh, the inspired and errant Word of God. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Please pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow before you as those who are terribly needy. And we pray that you would give us the grace, O God, not to be filled with arrogance, not to be filled with satisfaction of the knowledge that we might contain, and not to be, O Lord, complacent by any means, but rather, O Lord, to come as paupers, as we would come seeking your grace seeking your help as we live, O Lord, day by day under the assaults of the evil one, as we live day by day with the difficult affairs of life, as we live, O Lord, day by day, sometimes being blind to the realities of heaven. Grace is what we need. Grace is what we ask for this morning. I do pray that you would help me as I preach this text. I pray, O Lord, for the congregation that are here. I pray, Heavenly Father, if any are here outside of faith, that you would save them even today. Any here, O God, downcast, we pray, that you would lift them up as we are reminded of the great grace of God to us in Christ. Pray for your blessings upon the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever asked someone, why did you do that? Take, for example, someone is helping you uh, build something, construct something out of wood, and you're watching them, and you recognize that they are mismeasuring, and you recognize that they are about to cut inappropriately, but you allow them to do so because they're learning. Right? They're learning. And after they do that, you say, why did you do that? Or a greater urgency, perhaps, if you saw the three stooges short, where Moe and Larry and Curly are in a skiff, and they're taking on water, so Moe and Larry in the front of the boat are bailing the water out, and Curly finds something, he calls a water outer letter in the back of the boat, it's a drill. So he starts drilling holes in the boat to let the water out. He's with about six or seven of them. Moe says, what are you doing? Hey, hey. You may have seen that. They're all great. I mean, I love the Three Stooges. In urgency there, why and what are you doing? 
Well, here's a question. As we consider uh, this text, these marvelous verses in Ephesians, why did God save us? Why did God redeem us? It's something of a mystery. Is it not the history and the story of redemption? As you consider, God created. God created all that there is. And as the Jimmy Webb, I think it was James Webb, Jimmy Webb, the songwriter, they made the telescope after him. It's in space. And uh, it's taking pictures. It's taking pictures. And it's amazing the things we are seeing in the recesses of deep space. God made that. God created that. And so what David said and what David wrote and from what he could see in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, which he saw a whole lot more than we could see in Houston. But as that eyes of that telescope take pictures of things light years away, it's just amazing. God's creation. Well, why did God create all that there is? And then why did God, after he created the cosmos, why did he ordain the fall? Why did he ordain who would come to faith? Why did he decide to redeem a people after he decreed the fall? And why isn't he decreed to save them through the Lord Jesus Christ? Why did he do these things? Well, some would say, well, we can't answer that question. And well, I beg to differ. Uh, from Romans 11, 28 through 32, as regards to the gospel, uh, they are enemies of God for your sake, talking about the Jews, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too have they now been disobedient in order that he, by his mercy shown to you, may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy upon all. And so we see a characteristic of God, and I've told you this before, man hit home, that we would never know apart from the fall. And that is before Adam and Eve fell, before they plunged us into uh, rebellion, and before they consigned us to hell, There was a fellowship that God had with them as sinless people. But now the fall takes place and we see God's grace as he comes to the garden. And he fellowships with them in some manner that we cannot understand. We weren't there, but we know that he was and we know that they were. And as he comes to them, there's that great promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 3. And verse 15, he has consigned all disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. And as we stand before our God, as we examine our lives, we would have to say with certainty that we do not deserve any of his graces that he's shown to us. We do not deserve any of the kindness that he has shown to us because we are the very opposite. We are the antithesis of God's character and rightly standing before him in judgment apart from grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has consigned all the disobedience in order that he may show mercy to all. And we are left praising God for his kindness and his grace to us. And then again, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. And there it is again, that in everything Christ might have preeminence as the one who is not simply the creator, but he is also the redeemer. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Our present text also informs us as a part of the why it is that God saved us. These things should be kept in mind. I'm terribly afraid that throughout the days of the week we don't reflect upon these things. I'm not saying that we are any kind of rebellion or anything of that nature, but we just get caught up into life and these great truths that are ours. Why did God save a people? Why did God redeem us? Well, we learned here in Ephesians chapter 1 and really verse uh, 6, that is to worship. That one of the reasons God has redeemed us to himself is that we might worship him. Again, verse 6, to the to the uh, praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, to the praise of his glorious grace, to worship and to adore that great God of redemption and of salvation. So this morning, I would have us to see this, that uh, it is that through uh, this greatest expression of God's grace, the greatest expression of God's grace is seen in his redemption. And to outline the book very quickly for you, uh, in the first couple of chapters, the new life which God has given to us, to his church in Christ. Second point, the new society which God has created through Christ. The third, the new standard which God expects the new society and the new relationship into which God has brought us. That is basically an outline of the book. I did not write that outline. I can't remember who did. But then again, uh, again, uh, the greatest expression of God's grace is seen through the plan of redemption. And three things to see in the text we are going to, going to consider one this morning. The grace of God is seen in the establishment of the church. The grace of God is seen in the building of the church, the building up of the church. And then the last thing, the grace of God is seen through the end of the church, and that is that we are to worship our God for all ages. In the first place, in the grace of God is seen in the establishment of the church. Paul begins this letter by recognizing, by acknowledging that God is the architect of the people of God, of his own people. He is the architect of the church. And so Paul begins here by stating this fact that he is an apostle. He is one that is chosen to serve personally the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we learn of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul was not a lover of Christ. Paul hated Christ. Paul hated the Christian as well. You know the story from the Bible that he was on his way to uh, Damascus you know, to enchain, to imprison, to try and to execute those people who gave themselves to following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul is converted. He is an apostle. He states this in several letters because people were questioning the apostle Paul's authority. And let me say this. People who are called to the ministry today do not have the authority of the apostle Paul. And they should not think that they do. A minister is nothing more than a servant. That's it. A servant who's been called, who's been gifted and appointed by Christ to preach, 
But still, and there's a certain dignity and respect that goes with the office, but it is still nothing more than a servant. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, was called, equipped by Christ personally. And so that the Apostle Paul then had the authority to speak for Christ, had the authority as the Old Testament prophets to write. And so, as you know, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books. And so he speaks as one who is an apostle, speaks with authority, and speaks who uh, the word of God uh, as uh, one, again, in the Old Testament prophets, as the rest of the apostles, the other 12 apostles in the New Testament. And uh, it did not happen to me that way that I was driving down Hardy Street and I was going south on 49 to go to Biloxi to go fishing. And Jesus stood at my window and tapped on it and rolled it down and said, I want you to go north. I want you to go to St. Louis. I want you to go to seminary. And I want you to go to the ministry. I wish it had happened like that, but it did not. As a matter of fact, I was slow to accept the call. It was Dr. Piper who really encouraged me to go into the ministry. As a matter of fact, he said to me one time, and I'll never forgive him for it. He said, uh, if you don't go into the ministry, you better have a good reason not to. And after I finished a seminary, there was no call coming, and I was planning on going back to Hattiesburg and working at the Coca-Cola company. And when his uncle owned it, so I figured I'd get a job there. I had worked there before. But in God's province, going down to preach once a week in Anna, Illinois, is what, at least in my own mind, convinced me to go into the ministry. And so, all these years later, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than this. What a privilege and a responsibility as well to be called to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here the Apostle Paul, unique in that he was an apostle, I'm not an apostle, simply a servant of Christ, trying to do the best that I can to be faithful to the Lord. The second thing you notice, Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God. Again, he did not take this privilege upon himself. Paul's intent was to persecute the church. Paul's intent was to end the church by no means to preach Christ. That was not his intention whatsoever. And yet he is an apostle because of the working of God, because of the grace of God, that God would have him preach and teach the message of redemption. So God raised up this man who did marvelous things for the life of the church, the greatest missionary, I think, that the church has ever had. He called this man who was faithful to the Lord. Notice this next section here as we begin our studies into the book of Ephesians, uh, that who is addressed in this book? Well, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The recipients, uh, the saints, those who have made a credible profession of faith, those who are claiming to see and seeking to serve the Lord, those who claim to love him, those who claim to want to serve him, those who claim to love him deeply, those who understand the gospel and have personalized the gospel. And the gospel is something you must personalize. You must own it for yourself. That you recognize in your life that by nature you're sinful, and by nature you stand under God's wrath and condemnation, and by nature you are bound for condemnation and destruction. And so here is the offer of the gospel of Christ there, the source of our redemption and salvation, whereby we are not condemned 
As Paul says in Romans, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but rather we are saved. And we are not simply saved. We are brought into the family. We are children of God. That's who these people he's addressing. This letter, saints, those who knew and love the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice this. Paul qualifies this address to the saints very clearly in the text. He qualifies it. If you will, look at verse 1 again. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, who then are the faithful? Paul is not concerned that someone have a protracted, intricately woven message, story of their own conversion. And they wow people about all their spiritual uh, enlightenments and trials and whatnot, finally coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's not interested in that type of thing at all. If you have a conversion, that's great. A good conversion experience. Paul had one. That's wonderful. You might have been raised in the church. You'd have to say this. I can't really call a time I didn't really know Jesus. I just can't recall that. I can't look at my life and see changes that came about. But I can't really name a particular time where I can say at this moment I was converted. Paul could. Many people can't. That's okay. That's fine. See, he's not concerned with that. He is not concerned that you have a silver-tongued Mark Twain type of, of a beat it uh, all tells of your coming to faith in Christ. Paul doesn't have any concern for that at all. Uh, as in the vein of Pilgrim's Progress, as they talk, you wonder, will so-and-so ever reach the celestial city? And as they weave their tails and spin their yarns, uh, they fancify their, their conversion experience. And that, I know some people, they sit around and they, they tell about that, but sometimes it just seems to who can outdo the other person when that type of thing begins to happen. And it bothers me. If you want to come to my office and talk to me about your conversion experience, that's great. But these sharing things uh, so often take place in some groups. And it's uh, who can, uh, well, uh, you know, I had this thing happen to me. Well, I had this thing happen to me. Mine's better than yours. No, that's not the question. That's not the question at all. And, and so what is really a concern here is are you faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not are you an officer. Not are you a teacher. Not are you the superintendent of Sunday school. It is rather this, are you faithful? So again, it's not simply the saints who are at Ephesus. It is the faithful saints who are at Ephesus. So the Greek word that is used here is pistuo. Faithful. Uh, it's the same word that means to believe. And so it is the word that is used to whether or not you believe in uh, Christ as your Redeemer. Um, same idea expressed in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. So it is an expression then, faith used in this sense, is an expression of belief in the reality of the triune God. And in his Son as the Redeemer of the elect of God, an expression in the belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christ as the Redeemer. That's the recipe for salvation. But it goes beyond that. It means that we have a living and active faith that expresses itself 
day in and day out through our unshakable trust in God. In the Septuagint, which is, of course, the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew into Greek, Habakkuk 2.4, as for the proud, one is still is not right within it, but the justified by faith shall live. By faith is the same word used there. Only the context is quite different in the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, the stress is, are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe my promises when it seems as you look at circumstances, there's no reason to believe them at all? Where is our God, we might say, if we were living in Habakkuk's day, as uh, in the first place, that there's so much immorality all around us, and injustices all around us. The weak and the poor are swallowed up by those who have power. That's the things that Habakkuk was looking at in his own day and age, where justice is perverted, he says. Why don't you do something? We're your people. Why don't you act? Why don't you do something? And you know what God says to him. I'm going to do something. I'm going to destroy Israel. I'm going to tear this place apart. Uh, the temple is going to be raised. That's what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk says, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. How can you do that to us? We are covenant people. And there's that great verse. Trust me. Trust me. So that when someone goes to the doctor and they are told you've got cancer, God says, trust me. When you're having financial difficulties and you don't know how to make it from one week to the next, God says, trust me. There it is. The justified by faith shall live by faith and be faithful to Christ in all circumstances at all times. These are the people that the apostle is addressing here. And so it's obvious that you have those who are not faithful in the church. It's been the same throughout the ages, has it not? From the first century even unto today, there are those who are not faithful in the church. By implication, Paul is saying this. That there are some in the church who are very religious. They may be very involved in things. They may be teachers. They may be preachers. They may be filling the pulpit every week. And yet the reality of it is there is no love for Christ. There is no real commitment. And you know, as the writer to the Hebrews warns, that when, when uh, persecution starts, you find it a cost to follow Jesus. I didn't count on this. I didn't join up for this. I didn't join up to see people butchered. I didn't join up to have my property taken away. I didn't join up to have my, my portfolio stolen from me. That's not why I became a Christian. I became a Christian because I thought it was going to be an easy life. I want to go to heaven. But I didn't know I was going to have to pay anything for it. I didn't know I was going to have to suffer for it. So uh, I didn't sign up for this. Those in the church who are not faithful are not really those who are in love with Christ. They are worldly. They are worldly-minded. They treasure the things of the earth far more than the things of heaven. And they don't want their Christianity to cost them anything. That's the worldly people in the church. 
So Paul then, by implication of saying to the faithful, absolutely indicates there are people who are not faithful. In the day that the apostle Paul lived. And so there were some in the church, you recognize, uh, that were doubting Paul's, uh, they were questioning Paul's authority. And there were some in the church who were uh, saying that these Gentiles who are now coming into the church, well, they have to have the Old Testament sign applied to them. It's not enough to trust in Jesus. You know what Paul says about them. They're making shipwreck of their faith. Because they're not resting solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To the faithful, he says, that are in the church. And you ask yourself this question this morning. Am I one of the faithful? Am I faithful in my commitment to Christ? Not do I have knowledge of being able to quote scripture. Not do I have a great knowledge of reformed doctrine, which is very valuable. Both of those things are valuable. Not do I have the ability to preach or to teach or understand deep things of the scriptures. But do I have in my heart an unfailing commitment to Christ? Do I have that? Bebo Elkin was uh, a fellow. Uh, he was the RUF director at USM uh, when I first started going. And he left. Um, and then Bill Smith came for a number of years. Bill was there. Some of you, Bill came here years ago. And um, he said to me something one time that uh, was very interesting. Bebo did. People will excuse personality flaws as being simply the way they are. Bebo said, if you have a personality problem, it's a sin, repent of it. Because it's so woven into us, you see, it's kind of there. That's who I am. I'm made that way. No, no, no. God didn't make you that way. God had nothing to do with that. If you're given to anger, God didn't make you that way. If you're given to jealousy, God didn't make you that way. If you're given to fits of rage, God did not make you that way. Well, that's just who I am. That's my personality. No, it may be, but you need to repent. It was very interesting that Bebo said that to me because, you know, my own self, I have some character flaws that basically are woven into my personality that hurt my ministry. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You may know already. But those are things I have to deal with, things I have to struggle with. It's not easy. As a matter of fact, some days makes me want to say, look, I, I just can't do this anymore. Just can't do it. And so you plead, as ministers should plead, before the Lord to be faithful. When it's nice and easy and smooth and when it ain't so nice and it ain't so easy and it ain't so smooth. And sometimes you feel like you can't do anything that's right. Personality weakness is a sin. In so many cases, it's just focusing too much upon myself, not upon Christ, and the calling that God has given to me. So these personality flaws that we have, so many of them are sin, we have to simply to repent of them. But the faithful of Christ are faulty. The faithful of Christ are weak. The faithful of Christ are not perfect. If you think you don't have sin in your life, ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your children, ask close friends. If they're honest with you, 
my wife is terribly honest. They will let you know. They will let you know. And it's an act of love, you see. So nobody's perfect. And the Bible teaches us that clearly. First John chapter 1, verse 8. For there's no one who uh, is, is perfectly righteous. That's not what it says. I'm quoting the wrong verse. Anyone who says he has no sin, the truth is not in him. He deceives himself. The truth is not in him. We all sin. We are indeed sinners, and we will be sinners until we reach glory, or Christ comes back. And some of the sins that we committed, gross sins, like David, who committed adultery and murder, and then wouldn't pardon his heart against the Lord. Or Peter, who had been warned, you're going to deny me three times, Peter, tonight. Not me. Not me. And he did. And you know what happened. When Christ looked at him, he became afflicted in conscience. And the Bible tells us he kind of cried a little bit. That's not what it says. It says he wept bitterly. Uh, would that we would react like that when we came into conviction. Wept bitterly. He had denied his Savior. What a coward. What a coward. He was not being faithful at that moment. And so we recognize again that there are times in our own lives as believers when we are not faithful, but there is always that great grace of forgiveness. Oh, our God, loving, gracious, Kind to accept us back. Always. There doesn't come a point in our life with Christ when he says to us, that's enough. I disown you. I know parents who relationships with their children are such that they disown them. They cut them out of the wills and so forth. What a sad thing. What a terribly sad thing that that happens. And it does happen. God will never do that to us, ever. I don't care what you do. I don't care how sorry you are in your walk with Christ. If you are a believer, if you belong to Christ, He's never going to shut you out, ever. That's grace. God's love maintains us in our walk of faith. How we should praise Him for that. How it should be uppermost in our thoughts day in and day out as we live our lives before our great God. And there, what, what uh, Charles wrote in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, there is that great guarantee that I am going to be in the company of God's people forever. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. He maintains us, you see. And so we come to this verse in Ephesians, this sex, these verses in Ephesians, and we realize that this is a, an unfolding of the reality of the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. The unfolding of the fact that God is indeed blessing his church, the promise made to Abraham, and we enjoy the benefits of that promise. So then... I would encourage us uh, as Christians to reflect upon the cost of our redemption. 
he who takes sin but lightly as the hymn goes. Look at what it cost you. Look at what it didn't cost you anything. Look at what it cost God. That was heresy. Look at what it cost God for you to be able to sit at the table of the Lamb at that great feast. Look at what it cost God. Look at what it cost Christ, God's Son, as He suffered upon the cross of Calvary, all there for yours and my sakes. And it's maintained love, love, love. That is the ignition point, if you will. That is the continuing point that is behind the consummation of our redemption as well. So that we know that we are loved by a God, that love being unspoiled, unstained, and unending. How can we help but not praise him? As Paul points out, it was for the fact that he would desire that we worship him. And so we come to worship, we come here recognizing we are redeemed sinners. Redeemed by our great Savior upon the cross of Calvary. Reflect upon the end of your redemption, which is eternity in heaven. What a great God we have. What a great work of grace God has done for us. That we will be in paradise. All because of Christ. All because of the Lord Jesus and God's great love for us. Do you love Jesus or you simply are religious? Paul's addressing that here to the faithful in the church, to the faithful. The faithful are those who love and trust Christ and seek to live their lives for him. Let's pray.